Welcome to Painting Corners, your weekly podcast for all things baseball. Now, here are your hosts, Austin Hartsfield and Dave Kwiatkowski. Welcome to Episode 7 of Painting Corners. 7, the number of games it took the Dodgers to get to the World Series. My name is Austin Hartsfield. Dave Kwiatkowski is here with me as always. Dave, how do you feel about the Dodgers going to the World Series for a striking straight year? I think it's something that I was very surprised about, considering I had the Dodgers losing every series except for the Atlanta one, because I think everybody was going to beat Atlanta. But they're a team, like we talked about the last podcast, they are your Kansas City Chiefs. They're your Washington Capitals. Great regular seasons. They make it to the postseason, just can't get over the hump. Last year, they made it all the way to Game 7 and lost to the Astros, and they had an awful regular season. It was injury-plagued for sure, but not a good regular season. They ended up winning the West in a playoff you know, one game playoff game, a play in. And now they're back in the World Series. It's great for them. It shows that they can do it. They obviously have a loaded talent pool and they went out and made trades. They made moves. And, you know, they're they're the real deal. They're definitely the hottest team right now in the West for sure. Yeah, that's that's absolutely no question. I mean, that's why they they're here. I mean, they yeah. wouldn't be here for any other reason except they got hot. Uh, the acquisitions of Manny Machado looks really, really good right now. Uh, even the Brian Dozier one doesn't look awful. I mean, it got you to this point, right? Yeah, he made he made some key hits. He started a game, had a couple singles. He's not hitting the not slugging the way that they thought he would, but he had a down year to begin with. So I think that was to be expected. The Machado deal was huge, and just getting these guys to all be healthy at once is was their biggest thing all year. The Brewers were the hottest team to go in, but I don't think they were the best. But the Dodgers were probably the best team on paper, and then they got hot. And that's why they got here. I mean, it took them seven games, which is hard. I mean, they played a four-game series against Atlanta. They played a seven-game series against Milwaukee. They had to play a one-game, basically it was a one-game wild card, because then they would have had to play the wild card like the Rockies did. So they've been through the ringer, something that they haven't been used to the past six years. They've usually been top of the division, you know, coasting all the way through, and the question marks got to October. This year was the opposite, where... They struggled all, all regular season, and then they got to the postseason, and it's just they basically been lights out. Did this and that in the entire season without, I mean, my personal favorite player in baseball, that's not Andrew Benintendi and doesn't wear red socks, uh, Corey Seager. I mean, guys had hip problems, had Tommy John surgery as a shortstop. They did it the entire season without him, and my homer self is coming out, but definitely improved. Uh, at the shortstop position with Manny Machado. Yeah, I don't even think it was a, an improvement, like a homer thing for you. I think Manny Machado is you know, better than Corey Seager. I think he's going to get paid better than Bryce Harper, or maybe he should. Manny Machado's a real deal. When he cares at shortstop position, he's unbelievable defensively. When he doesn't care, it shows in his uh, defensive UCR over there. He's baseball's the Randy Moss. Like If he played every single play, it'd be awesome. Yeah, if he carried every single play, if he went balls to the wall every single play. I mean, he talked about how he's not Mr. Johnny Hustle and then went out and had a bunt single. But I mean, did he even hustle that hard there? Don't even know. But he's obviously, he's a douche. I think that people are just starting to see it. The real baseball fans knew that. Anybody in a Red Sox fan or Red Sox division has known that he's been like this his entire career. He's a crybaby. You know, he's he's a perfect Yankee, man. He loves to start stuff, not finish it. He loves to point fingers, but he loves to also carry himself on a very high level for no reason let's talk about the jesus aguilar play how is that the dirtiest thing that you've ever seen and if it's not it definitely comes a close second to his teammate and one of my personal favorite players unfortunately and chase utley yeah i mean 
I think that it was extremely dirty. The result was not dirty, right? I don't think Aguilar right. hurt at all. I don't even think he if even he would have broke his ankle, it's a completely different story. Completely different story. It wasn't a case of Aguilar was all over the bag and he had his you know foot, his toe in the middle of the bag, and Manny was just running through. Manny was out by four steps. He looked down at his ankle. He dragged it. He ran on the inside of the base path, which you usually never see, right? You always see guys running on the outside, either because they're going to make a turn or they're just running straight through the bag. It, I mean, it was a classic Manny Machado play. He literally didn't hustle down the line, and he had that intention from me. As soon as he took two steps out of the box, he knew what he was doing. It's definitely one of the dirtiest plays. It is up. It might not even be Manny Machado's dirtiest play, though. He's gone spikes first before. He's basically you know, ended Dustin Pedroia's career. Yeah, he you know he did he's you know put the black cloud above Pedroia's you know injury you know reasons from here on out and you know it was a very dirty play. Aguilar obviously he's buddies with them. I believe they're talking Spanish when he turned around and kind of got in his face, and it was kind of basically from what everyone was saying was like, oh, oh, what the fuck was that for type yeah. of deal? And very, very warranted. I mean, there was no reason for that. And it just shows. Now, Machado was going to get thrown at for that if that happens to the Red Sox. And he'll freak out. He'll start saying that, you know, baseball is being used as a weapon. I can't defend myself. You know, what am I supposed to do? Aguilar can't defend himself there. Anybody you're taking out second base can't defend themselves. And I just think that it's just a classic Manny Machado play. It's, that's Manny being Manny in the worst kind yeah, of way. Yeah. yeah, in the worst kind of way. And, you know, it, it's just on the biggest stage now that people are seeing it. But Yeah, it's magnified. Oh, it's big time magnified. And he had a great series. Don't get me wrong either. He played unreal, you know, defensively. He had a, a few home runs, I'm pretty sure, right? And he I mean, yeah, yeah. one single. I mean, he did everything that series. And he's everything is advertised. But he's also got that black cloud above him when it comes to being that type of player. And that's not going to stop. And he's, he won't stop in the World Series either. I mean, he doesn't like the Red Sox. He's openly admitted that. They've had their battles in the past. And if he goes hard into Bogarts or he does something stupid to see Steve Pierce or there's a play at the plate, he's going to get a 102-mile-an-hour fastball at, at his back. Yeah, one, I mean, 100%. Probably get somebody like Matty Barnes in there, in there to throw at him. So that way he gets every single mile per hour of it. Yep. Yeah, Evaldi coming out of the pen or Evaldi game three starter. If he does something stupid game one or two, he's going to catch one. Yep. Um, let's. We got a tale of two Clayton Kershaws in this series. We got to see the bad Clayton Kershaw, a.k.a. playoff Clayton Kershaw, and then all of a sudden that Cy Young winner comes in there and pitches a phenomenal game in his second start and then closes out the NLCS uh, in game seven. Yeah, I mean, Clayton Kershaw is who we thought he was. I mean, his quote-unquote playoff Kershaw was magnified from the beginning of his career and throw in Madison Bumgarner being unbelievable in his first couple World Series appearances kind of made him look even worse. But since 2015, Kershaw's been unreal in the playoffs. And, you know, once again, it was one start for him this time. Against Atlanta, he went eight innings, giving up no runs. I mean, that's unbelievable. In his first Milwaukee start, he only went three innings, giving up four and runs. Awful. His second Milwaukee start, seven innings, one earned run, amazing. Then he came out and closed it out. So he had one bad game. I mean, if Chris Sale or Madison Bumgarner or you know Severino goes in with that same stat line, they say, yeah, he had one bad game, but he was dominant in two different starts against two different teams and closed out the game with two strikeouts. I mean, that's just that's just nastiness. And Kershaw's going to go in. He was already working in the Red Sox bullpen the last couple of days out there, stretching out, getting a feel for the cold weather. 
and he's pitching really well. What is the biggest key for the Dodgers in the World Series? Their their biggest key is their starting pitching. I think it's similar to the Milwaukee bullpen. I think if we were playing, if the Red Sox were playing the Brewers, they would be saying, okay, it's their bullpen. Can they continue to throw all these innings? Can Harder continue to come in and be dominant? You know, are they going to continue taking guys out in the second and third inning and be able to use that in a six or seven game series? For the Dodgers, it's their bullpen. Can their starter, I mean their starters, can their starters go six, seven innings every single time? Can Bueller still be unbelievable? Can Kershaw go seven innings? He's gone seven and eight innings, two out of three starts that he's had. He's been lights out. Bueller's been good. Hill's been good. Can they continue this, though? Yeah, and it, it just comes down to can the kids continue to shine on the brightest state? I mean, Cody Bellinger's still a kid. Walker Bueller's still a kid. Everybody that has needed to step up for the Dodgers in this postseason has. I mean, Ryu showed up at times. Kershaw's been Kershaw, and if they continue to do that, they're going to be a hard baseball team to beat because that lineup's no joke. I understand that the Red Sox is really, really good, and we just got through a better Astros team with a better lineup, but this this is the best lineup in the NL. Yeah, this is the best one through nine lineup. I think the Brewers are the best one through four and five. I mean, you look at guys like Kane and Shaw and Moustakis and Yelich, and you're like, oh boy, that's that's big time. But you look at the one through nine for the Dodgers, it's very similar to the Astros, where you get to the bottom of the lineup and you're looking at Correa and, you know, like a Gurriel, if he's down there that game or not. And you look at the Dodgers, you've got to face Chris Taylor down there. And, you know, they move guys around. Roberts does that a lot. So they have all these playmakers. I mean, you look at Chris Taylor, who is an older kid, quote-unquote, but that play he made in left field, that, that kind of saved the game. I mean, you don't know what happens after that. And you need to make those plays, just like Mookie Betts, made that catch against Altuve, Robin of a home run, the Red Sox win by two that game. You know, it's a tie game if that's not the case. So every single run counts, every single hits counts in the playoffs, and it gets magnitude in a series like this. I understand the Mookie Betts one is big, but can we talk about the the cats that probably saved saved a game and definitely saved at least two runs? We'll get to the Red Sox here in a second. Any more words on the Dodgers? Yeah, Puig needs to continue to do what he's doing. I need, to, I think, I need Puig to open his mouth. Yeah, Puig needs to open his mouth as for Red Sox fans to get a little locker room, you know, bulletin board material. But Puig is the heart and soul of that team. Obviously, Kershaw is the best player on that team. But Puig's the guy. He makes that team run. His, you know, I love his energy. I think it's awesome. I love, I, it's so funny when he pimps a single. Yeah, I mean, it's a big deal when you have an RBI single in a, in a one nothing game to make it 2 to nothing. Like, that's huge. His home run the other day, the three-run shot, massive, pimped it. And he should, absolutely. But, you know, old-time baseball won't like it. You know, some guys may think he does a little too much. But that kid's been through hell in his personal life and even in his professional life. He's been down in AAA. There's been talks of trading for him. I mean, the Dodgers called earlier this year in the preseason and asked the Red Sox for JBJ 1v1, 1-up, straight up. JBJ for Puig, straight up. And the Red Sox said no. And I think both teams are happy with that because the Red Sox don't win the pennant without JBJ and the Dodgers don't win the pennant without Puig. So I think offensively that Puig's the X factor for that series. And I think the whole pitching staff for, you know, the Dodgers is their X factor there. Can they go deep in games? Can Puig stay hot? Can Puig be clutch? Because he kind of goes and the rest of the team goes. Well, and another guy that struggled mightily at the beginning of the season and there were definitely at least some trade talks around him. Cody Bellinger. There were talks with Cody Bellinger going maybe to AAA. 
maybe going separate ways with the team and dealing him to another. But this man has turned it around, and he had some huge hits in that NLCS. Yeah, very similar to Jackie Bradley Jr. Started out the year terrible. Talks of trading him, talks of moving him somewhere, talks of trying to trade him for a starting pitcher or a closer, and stuck with him, stuck with him, hit the ball well, just couldn't get any luck, and had a huge series. Bellinger did as well. Didn't he win the MVP of that series? He did. He did. JBJ did as well. And, you know, JBJ hit three hits at one point, and they're all, they're all RBI home runs or doubles. He ended up getting a lot of walks and a couple singles in there too, and Bellinger was very single, uh, very similar. Big hits, you know, home runs, slugging. That's what he does, and that's what JBJ does. He's not a single type of guy. Bellinger, same thing. They are second, you know, doubles and homers. That's what they do, and that's what they that's what they hit for. That's what their swing patterns for. You know, they're both lefties, and they're both big X factors for their teams. And you know, I'm happy for Bellinger. You know, they have a lot of guys in this team that are you know, on good contracts, but a little bit older. You know, you look at a Chris Taylor, who's on his rookie contract, but he's like, what, 28 years old? Very similar. It's like a Whit Merrifield and a Scooter Garnett. So they need these guys to keep playing the way they're playing. And, you know, it, w- it would have been crazy. You know, Puig on the Red Sox, JBJ in center for the Dodgers and Bellinger in AAA or another team. But, you know, they stuck with their guys, and I think both teams are very happy they did. Let's go to the ALCS. We're going to gush about our boys in a second because both of them had outstanding series, whether it's defensively, offensively, yours, both. But uh, David David Price is pretty good. David Price is good again. <laughs> you heard it here first. I mean, that Game 5 start was the biggest of his career in the postseason, I'd say. And he had a really good performance in Detroit. In a loss, he went seven innings and only gave up like two runs, but took the loss in that series, in that game. He didn't take the loss this time. He pitched amazing. He could have came out again, but Cora has been perfect with his management of the bullpen. Game one of that series, he got thrown out in the third inning, I think, or the fourth inning. So when Workman came in all those other guys, that wasn't his call. Now, you could say he's in the dugout relaying it, but we're just going to go off face value and say it wasn't his call. After that, he was perfect with that. But David Price really showed up on the road, velocity was high, on short rest, every excuse in the book not to do well. Hostile environment. And he pitched hostile environment, defending world champs, short rest, you know, and the playoff monkey on his back, and he dominated. He certainly did. I mean, that was the greatest pitching performance that I've seen maybe since, I mean, I guess the Evaldi one was pretty good too, but I haven't seen a performance like that in the playoffs from a Red Sox pitcher since Lackey. Yeah, Lackey and Lester, right? Those guys. Those guys, Lackey, Lester, Beckett, and if he does what he did in Game 2 of the World Series, he's going to turn into John Lackey, the biggest 180 Red Sox fans had. He went six innings, giving up only three hits, nine strikeouts, 93 pitches, no earned runs, no walks. If he can even come close to that, even give him a straight-up quality start, give him six innings, two or three runs, you know, six, seven strikeouts, he's going to go down as a Red Sox legend. And if the Red Sox win the World Series this year— on the back of David Price pitching an elimination game in Houston on short rest and getting a win in the World Series, and the Red Sox end up winning. I mean, talk about you know just having the city just be your best friend again after being wanted to be, you know, cast away for how long now? Yeah, I mean, and if, for people that aren't Red Sox fans that are listening, the Boston media is ridiculous. The Boston media the, the, is the most yeah. toxic media base in sports if you do one thing wrong they completely turn around on you and they basically convince the fans that you are the worst thing to happen to this city ever david price has been 
demonized i guess let's call let's call it that by the city and has tried to convince the city to hate him for so long because of his past failures in the in the postseason doesn't have a phenomenal start his first time out you know has a has a bad has a bad start against the yankees i mean i think we can both agree with that one it wasn't great awful start awful start against the yankees but both of the astros starts weren't bad no the one that he gave up four runs on he had a, a lot of bad luck and it's one of those things that you know if you're a good pitcher, you're a good hitter, you're going to have bad luck, but you got to turn that around. And he did it in that second game. And is all forgiven yet? Not really, right? I mean, it's huge what he did, but he needs to do it in the World Series too. If he goes throw out there and, and pitches a stinker in the World Series, goes four innings, giving up five runs or four runs, two, three home runs, I, I think he goes back to being like, well, that was a fluke. But if he can go out there and dominate, it just shows that he finally figured it out. We, But the Sox need him to step up one more time maybe even two more times if it goes that far which we'll get into that later he needs to show up this whole series he can't have a bad series nope uh somebody who also can't have a bad series if the red sox want to win is chris sale chris sale back on the bump for game one by the way just got the news alex core just announced that david price will be starting game two for certain as we thought anyway, yeah. and Evaldi on game three is pretty great. It kind of protects Price, so if he has a bad game, you got someone that's been your best postseason pitcher is Evaldi. He's been better than Sale. He's been better than Price. He's been better than Porcello. He's been your best on a hostile environment in the road. You know, regardless of the, you know, the fan level out there, you know, how much do they really care about baseball in L.A.? It will be a sellout. They will be loud, and it will be pressure. And Evaldi's come in in multiple, you know, different scenarios with pressure, he was lights out against the Yankees. He came out of the bullpen. He could he could have saved that game and gone to it. I think innings. we wanted him to honestly, but yeah, I did for sure. And you know, it's it's good to see Cora go back to Kimbrel. It's good to see Kimbrel pitch the best he's pitched, which was that closeout game. So that was big. But you let's know, talk about him real quick. Three. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Craig Kimbrel. He's not tipping his pitches anymore. It looks like at least. I mean, because the Astros had no idea what was coming. No, and I think he was tipping his pitches. And one hundred percent. I don't think that's an Astros cheating scandal thing. I think that he was doing it against the Yankees. I think Severino was doing it against the Red Sox as well. You had got he was throwing O two fastballs and you had JBJ and Mookie and you know in the dugout saying fastball's coming. Yep. Why are you throwing O two fastball in the zone and how do they know it's coming? Exactly. Because and that's the thing with Craig Kimbrell though. Think about it. He only had really has two pitches. So if you that's know it. one's coming, you can lock in on it and as soon as it comes out of his hand, you can know. And his other pitch is his out pitch. And everyone says his out pitch is the high-rising the high rising fastball. It's not. His out pitch is that knuckle curve because he needs to get you down to 0-2 with that or you'll be 0-2 and he throws that and you swing at it. You know, a fastball, unless you throw 105, isn't really your out pitch, I don't think anyway. Right. I think you might see more strikeouts on it. That's because they're thinking of that knuckle curve in the dirt and they see it in the last second they have to swing. So I think his out pitch is that knuckle curve, is that breaking ball, whatever you want to call it. Because and here's the thing with that knuckle curve. It starts at your eye line. 100%. Uh, it, it, it comes out of the same arm slot. It does everything. But if you know it's coming, you know not to swing at it because it's rarely a strike, right? Unless he comes out, first pitch, buckles your knees, which he's done before. Ovaldi did it, which was awesome of him and awesome of the pitching staff and Vasquez, who was still catching him, I think, at the time. I don't know if Sandy came back in yet. You know, just it's, you're thinking 102 is coming down the pipe and you get one up high, you know, it's 88, 92. And it Establish the breaking and, ball. Yeah, you don't know what's coming. Kimbrell looked really looked better in that, you know, game five save. I don't think he looked great as he gave up a long fly ball 
to, I don't know who it was to. Bregman. Ben Attendee called it on the track. Bregman, yeah. You know, Ben Attendee caught it on the warning track. But if that was a little bit left, that's a home run. And he gave up a walk. So not great, right, but much better. And it didn't seem like they knew what was coming. I'm going to let you gush about yours in a second. But my boy made probably the best catch in the postseason that I've ever seen. I mean, the Mookie one the next day was great. The Mookie one that same day would have been equally great. Andrew Benintendi, the balls on that man. With the bases loaded, Alex Bregman up, the crowd chanting MVP. Astros about to tie up the series while that ball's in the air, and everybody in that building thinks it's a tie series at that point. Everybody. There's not yeah. there's not one person in that building that's like, you know what, he can catch this. Because if you see where he starts, there's no chance. I mean, I think there was a 21 catch probability on StatCast that he was going to catch it, and it looked like even yeah. worse than that. But the balls to dive and the instincts to dive and make that catch just took the complete air out of that stadium. It made me a happy kid, and it made Alex Bregman an even madder kid than I was happy. Yeah, I mean, that's your guy. Everyone knows that. Ben Attendee's your guy, and he is an elite outfielder. Not with his arm yet, but with his instincts and with his glove. He makes unbelievable catches. He had 12 outfield assists this year, and you can credit a lot of that to how well he plays the monster. It's not his arm that's doing it. It's how well he plays the monster. His accuracy of his arm, sure, but he's not throwing the ball 120 miles an hour like it seems JBJ and Mookie do when they get the ball. But he's pinpoint accurate, and he plays the monster so well. He plays the field so well with his glove and his instincts, and that's all it was. He knew in his head he's diving for that ball. Yep. He As soon as that ball hit the bat, he was running – he knew, yep, I'm diving for this ball. He's a lefty out in left field. Glove goes perfectly right there towards the line, and he just laid out for it and made the catch. And concentration, you know, confidence. I mean, if he's not a confident guy, he lets that bounce, and he, and he plays the bounce, and he says, all right, it's a one-run game. You know, I kept it in front of me, and I, I played it safe. But he had the confidence to go out there and get it, and I think that just shows how confident this Red Sox team, how confident their outfield is. They're the best defensive outfield in baseball, and they've been proving it all postseason longs. But Andrew Benatendi did it with the bat, and he did it more with the glove. I mean, that was unbelievable, and he's going to have a, a big World Series too. Dave, your boy's a World Series MVP. Jackie Bradley Jr., or he's an ALCS MVP. God, I hope he's a World Series MVP. I'm kind of hoping mine's a World Series MVP. I just hope he gets enough playing time. But Jackie Bradley, Jackie Bradley Jr., ALCS MVP, Maybe the greatest three-game stretch since Poppy in 04 with the nine RBIs in three games. Yeah, I mean, between Poppy in 04 and just Poppy in 2013 in general, just pick a three-game stretch there, right? But he was he was lights out. He was unconscious. Two outs, runners on base, he was getting a hit. And they weren't bloop singles. They weren't errors. They weren't 50-50 balls. They were bombs. no doubters. They were bombs for home runs or went the other way off the monster. Which is what Jackie Bradley does. He he. This is when he is on. This is what he does. He ropes balls and he hits the ball hard. You can look at his stat cast. You look at his batted balls. And when he's on, he doesn't try and pull those opposite field balls. He goes with them. And you know he's not swinging at stuff in the dirt. He's locked in on fastballs. He's turning on things and he's getting the launch angle up. And it's showing how good he is and what his potential is. We know he's a Gold Glove center fielder. He hasn't won one yet. That will probably change this year. He has one of the hardest arms throwing from the outfield. He has, He's one of the fastest guys in the outfield. His instincts are amazing. And this is what he does when he gets the ball. He's never going to hit 300. That's not his game. His game is bat 250, hit 20-plus home runs, hit 30, 40 doubles, and be that second leadoff guy in the lineup, which he's been. He's a career, like, 80% stealer. And 
it took a perfect throw and played it to have uh, him thrown out by Molinato anyway at second base, which he almost sw- swum out of at second on his slide. He's a great slider as well. And he gets a lot of hate from Boston media. He gets a lot of hate from the yeah. casual Red Sox fan. And, you know, he just showed everybody what happened. The guy had a 33 hit game, uh, hit streak a couple years ago. He's good. He's good at baseball. He just doesn't get the credit he deserves. That's my guy through and through. Everyone knows that. If you listen to our former podcast, was the biggest JBJ supporter, and I'm happy that he's showing the world why I was that supporter. From games two through five, not only did Jackie Bradley Jr. crush the Astros, but the Red Sox just put on an absolute clinic, offensively and defensively and pitching. They made the former world champs look like they weren't even a playoff team. They won four straight games, three on the road, and they won four straight games against the world champion Astros. People just aren't talking about that enough, I feel like. They're 5-0 and on the road, by the way. Yeah, the Astros did not look like the Astros that we've seen basically the past two years. It's it's not. It might be connected. It might not be connected. But the Astros did get caught game one in Fenway Park with cameras. Basically, what had happened was the Astros had a non-media member with a tiny camera right next to the Red Sox dugout. And what they claimed was... They just wanted to make sure that the Red Sox weren't cheating. So you're going to cheat so just, just so you can make sure that the Red Sox weren't cheating? That's not suspicious at all. No, that's not completely weird at all. I mean, they got caught red-handed. You know, they were probably going back with the Red Sox Apple Watch thing that the Red Sox got a little slap on the wrist for. The Yankees got caught doing something a couple years ago, including the Pineda big pine tar on his neck, which he didn't even try and hide. Every pitcher does it. But just like every pitcher has pine tar, and just like every team tries to steal signs, there's gamesmanship to it. You just can't be an idiot about it. The Red Sox got caught with Apple Watches, for better or for worse. The Astros got caught with a media member there. Personally, if it was just a gray area, they had a guy walking around recording things. You know, that's just gamesmanship. They got to tighten up security. They should be looking into things more. They should look at. The, they should ask the guy a few questions. If they see a guy at the camera, they should ask for his credentials and go over it and tell him there's a restricted area. The Red Sox change signs all the time. Every team does. I don't think it's a big deal. Now, if this guy's recording certain things that no other team is, going into restricted areas on the cover and, and lying about things, it's a little different then. The, the Astros were 0-4 as soon as he got caught, and the Red Sox were switching signs all the time. Alex Cora had Cindy and Vasquez throwing down multiple signs with no runners on base, so they might have been worried about guys in the outfield. I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, they were looking but... for somebody basically in, in center. Or yeah, anyway. Anybody with binoculars, basically. Yeah, anybody that could see in there and, and relay back, either whether it be an Apple Watch or a sign out there, some some light shows, I have no idea. But the Astros did not look like the Astros after that, and Craig Kimbrell changed some things after that, and the Astros struggled. It all happened, basically, after Alex Bregman's Insta- infamous Instagram story. Let's call it that. What yeah. an idiot. You just saw Aaron Judge get blasted, and the Red Sox basically sweep them after that. Why on earth would you give the best team in baseball, probably roster-wise, any fire? This is the best team in baseball. I mean, look at look at our roster ahead to toe and tell me somebody's better. Because the Astros didn't look it. I mean, the Dodgers have pretty much struggled most of the postseason with the roster that they have. The Red Sox have had a pretty easy time to this point. Why give them anything? The Red Sox are undefeated on the road this postseason and beat both teams and only lost both to both teams once. They beat the Yankees in four, they beat the Astros in five, including winning four straight. You know, it goes back to 
you know, go look at the dominant teams in the league, right? And in, in not even baseball. Go look at the Spurs. Go look at the New England Patriots. And go look at this year's Boston Red Sox. When the team is the best and they have a good coach or a manager, Greg Popovich, Bill Belichick, Alex Cora being the manager here, you already have that mentality in the locker room that we know we're the best, but we have to act like it and we have to act above you know, who we are. The Red Sox are doing that. And you don't need to give them any other reason to do it. Evaldi came out and threw a 102 cutter to strike out Alex Bregman. It had movement. You can call it a cutter. You call it a two-seamer, whatever you want to call it. That's filthy. Aaron Judge playing New York, New York, which made no sense. They won one game, and you couldn't even hear it from where the Red Sox were in the concourse. They're old-school cement walls, and there's, going, there's talking going on in the Red Sox dugout at locker room. No reason for that. These guys tried to do too much. Alex Bregman stared down Andrew Benatendi, pointed at him after he made that catch. Benatendi gave him the, you know, the gun show going back with the fingers, the finger, the finger pistols, and laughed in his face. When you have a team so disciplined, you can't do it. 99% of the time, it doesn't work. When you talk shit like this, when you give bullet support material, the other team usually comes out on top. And so far, the Red Sox are 2-0 and when it comes to teams talking shit, saying that basically it's over, and the Red Sox just pounding them in the sand. Now it's time for World Series predictions. Uh, I have Sox in five. I have Sox in seven. I think it's going to go seven solely because you have question marks on guys. Can Price do it again? Can Evaldi keep it going? And who's the Red Sox game for starter? Do they use Porcello there? Do they use Porcello in the pen? I think Kershaw is going to be Kershaw, and I don't think that Kershaw in game five or game six is going to get eliminated. Walker Buehler is going to have a good start. You know, Rich Hill, if he has a good start, that's a win right there, most likely. So I think it goes Sox seven, you know, just solely because of that. I do think the Sox are the best team. I think they're the hottest team. And they've been the best team through and through from the start. They're the 2016 Cubs. They're the 07 Sox. They're any mid-90s Yankee team. You know, they're, they've been the best, and they're proving it right now. And I just don't think this Dodgers team can hold out, especially with the last two being in Boston. Well, they're the 90s Braves in the NL. I mean, nobody could stop them. Yeah. So from one World Series prediction, we're going to do one more World Series prediction. Over under on Mookie Betts' appearances at second base. Three games in L.A. So three games over under. If I put it at one and a half, how many games does Mookie Betts play second base, if at all? I think he goes over. I think he plays two games. I think that they. it depends on what happens game one and two. If the Sox are up 2-0, I don't think Mookie plays game three at second. If the Sox are 1-1 or 0-2, I think he plays first base, the first game at second base and see how it goes. If he struggles in the field, if he goes 0-4, if he's just confused, if he's just not feeling himself, you'll see Kinsler back in there, or you'll see Holt, who has played really well this, this postseason. I think he needs to play at second base. I think that Core is a great manager. I think you need that whole outfield in there. I think you need J.D. Martinez, who... J.D. Martinez has struggled slugging the ball this postseason he's batting over 300 this postseason and he's just hitting the ball hard it's either bad luck or singles so he's playing well Mookie Betts has been unbelievable in the field hasn't gotten the bat off his shoulder yet really going JBJ was your ALCS MVP and and Ben Attendi has been your defensive wizard out there as well with Mookie so I think you need to see him second base has been the struggling point for the Red Sox all year and the postseason I think it's a no-brainer to put the former second baseman at second base yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the over too. Like I just I set on Socksphere. I mean, little mini shout out right there. The boys at Socksphere, 
but I didn't think that he was going to play second base. But now that I've got to thinking about it, and if that includes... Think about the options that we have at second base is the thing. They're not great. None of them are great. You know, we can... Well, offensively, they're not great. They're great defensively. Yeah, we can talk about Rockhold all we want. You know, he hit for the cycle, la di da da He's not Mookie Betts offensively. He's better off the bench. He's a pinch hitter, situational guy. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you on the over. Let's go to Marlins news. Yeah, that's right. We went from the best to the worst. But they're about to get better. They're about to get better. The Miami, Miami Marlins just signed Victor, Victor Mesa and Victor Junior Mesa to uh, to international contracts. Brought, brought both of them to prospects that are going to accelerate this rebuild, and I'm pretty excited for them after trading the entire outfield in the offseason. Adding two potential absolute studs, definitely one Victor Victor, and I'm really excited for this team. Yeah, they're going to be good in a couple of years. Just to give you know the listeners who don't know about the prospects or the Miami Trash Marlins, what positions do these guys play? Where are they going to fit into this team in a couple of years? Well, Victor Victor is probably going to play the outfield, and I wouldn't be surprised. Junior can play wherever, I think. I mean, the scouting grades on him, he's got 50-plus everything. There's nothing on him that I believe that the MLB.com scouting has him below a 45, which is absolutely insane. The kid can play anywhere. He's going to... Victor Victor is going to fit perfectly in that outfield that doesn't have a ton of studs, probably doesn't even have a stud unless you want to include Lewis Brinson here in a couple years. But uh, I'm really excited for them. I'm sure you are too. We love prospects. We love baseball, and they're going to make Miami exciting again. Miami had arguably – no, they didn't have arguably. They they had the best outfield in baseball the last couple years in the NL. The AL, you could say, it was the Red Sox with Two MVPs and Marcelo's in yeah, exactly. You had Ozuna, who had had a struggling year this year, but been lights out. Christian Yelich is going to win the MVP this year in the National League. And you had Giancarlo Stanton, who won the MVP last year. And just, you know what Giancarlo does. He's going to hit you 30 to 50 home runs a year. That's a lot of home runs. They know how to build an outfield. Jared, Derek Jeter knows how to build a baseball team, it seems. I think he does. I really do. I think he's a smart baseball mind. He was an above-average player in his career and had a great career. I think he's going to be an above-average baseball general manager president whatever he decides to put his title on and i think he's going to have an above average career there i think we're going to see both victor victors in the outfield at one point and then they just have to find out someone else i think that you'll see victor victor mesa in center i think you'll see his brother in left or right and i think you'll finish finish another corner outfield somewhere and this team looks like the padres right now they're two or three years away. They're just waiting for development. They're waiting for starting pitchers. And they just need one one free agent. They're not going to get a Harper. They're not going to get a Machado. They're not going to get a a big, you know, superstar guy. But they will get a Eric Hosmer type deal. They will get a guy there that is above average, maybe even, even you know, low elite type of player to go put somewhere. Third, first, second, somewhere he'll get there. And then it just fills in the blanks. And if they can hold on to Real Muto behind the bench, I mean behind the plate, they're going to have their outfield set and behind the plate set their your most important defensive spots in the field. You could build around that. I mean, that, that outfield could most certainly be Mesa's and Brinson. That's not a bad outfield. No, it's not. And you have a lot of athleticism out there. You'll have not a lot of errors, and you'll have a lot of guys saving runs. Cubs second round pick Brennan Davis is with us. Very exciting interview. One of my favorites so far. I hope you enjoy it. Brennan Davis, second round pick of the Chicago Cubs. 
Who's someone that you modeled your game after growing up? So growing up, I always kind of looked up to Lorenzo Cain. I just loved the way he played the game. I loved the way he carried himself. And I just saw myself becoming somebody like him in the future. That's who I was always looked up to as a role model. That's a that's a good role model to have. It's a, it's an interesting one because before this year, I mean, he was in a small market team. You're from across the country, out west, I believe, right? Well, mountain time, I guess I should say. So, you know, how did you end up watching him? Was it just because when they were making their run, you kind of were a big baseball guy? Or did you just kind of know from the start, you're like, wow, I, I really like the way he plays the game? I was actually at my friend's house, and he had brought up that he kind of, like, played a little bit like me and then I started watching him more and that's kind of where I was like wow he's, I do like the way he plays the game and it just it just snowballed from there so you're a state champion in basketball was there any thought of playing basketball instead of baseball there was actually a lot of thought I actually was on the club basketball circuit more than I played club baseball I didn't really grow up playing club baseball I was spent all my off-season playing club basketball. So up until my junior year summer, it was kind of, I loved them both equally. So it was kind of whichever one I saw myself going further in. And baseball opportunities started opening up, and I knew that was the path I had to follow. Yeah, so you actually didn't really have any major offers until your junior year, that summer that you just kind of said. You absolutely crushed it in your area code games. What what kind of change? What happened? What went from being like, you know, I really love basketball and I'm a good basketball player to, oh man, I'm going to get drafted in the MLB. <laughs> um, just the possibilities, I, I'd have to say. Just the lack of baseball that I've played and people taking notice in my abilities of what I can do and what I will be able to do. Just really what made me want to focus on baseball more and give it a shot because I never played one sport full-time. Full I love that confidence. You just know you're going to be a good player. Love, love that little dig there. That's, 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 that's good for the interviews later in life. So you, were, so you were obviously a big prospect coming out of, the dra out of high school. You got drafted in the second round. That's, that's a big deal. Like, that's not, you know, the 39th round. They kind of gave you a phone call and you said, hey, what's up? You know, we want to take a risk on you. You know, what was that process like? I mean, you're out there in a small mountain town and, you know, you're going to get drafted by Theo Epstein, the Cubs. What what was that process like leading up to the, you know, second day of the draft? Uh, it was crazy. Everything moved so fast with the draft process. I remember in the winter I was meeting with teams, doing home visits, and then teams would come out to watch me hit and they would come stay for little pieces of my games and then leave, so... Nobody really gave me any indication of where I was at with anything. And then after my high school season, we went to, I went to about five or six pre-draft workouts. I, I ended up playing pretty well at the Wrigley ones. <laughs> so it was, just, it was just a whirlwind. It was a crazy experience. So day of the draft, you're selected in the second round by a Cubs team that's nearly two years removed from two years removed from a World Series. Take us through that day, the emotions, and everything that pretty much went on that day. Yeah, so I 
was pretty nervous. I'm not gonna lie. I was. I was also at that point. <laughs> I was. I was. I was unsure if I was gonna be a day one guy or a day two guy, and like just because of how crazy draft day actually is, and it was leading up to it. I was just with my family, and they were gonna be supportive no no matter what. So it was, it was comforting knowing that, but I didn't know anything really until 15 minutes before. I was gonna get picked, so it was a very stressful day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Austin and I. This is a, obviously we love baseball. You know, the Cubs are my National League team. I have a lot of family out there, and I've been out there before, and I've been following them before they were good. But you know, we're Red Sox fans. I'm from Rhode Island. I'm an hour away from Boston. Austin grew up a huge Red Sox fan. You got to talk to, and I'm assuming maybe even meet the guy that brought us a World Series, which is Theo Espine. What was it like, like meeting him? I mean, you always hear how, you know, just intimidating he is and high energy. And, you know, you heard the stories of him, like, throwing chairs, losing out on backup catchers at the trade deadline. What, what was it like meeting him? And did you talk to him? Did you meet him? Did you just get a text? What was that like? No, yeah. So at my pre-draft workout, the, the Cubs did an awesome job of, putting us in situations where we had a chance to talk and sit down with the office guys and the people who make the decisions for the draft. So I was able to talk to him and have a conversation with him and along with a lot of the other guys. It was a little intimidating at first, but he was so down to earth and did a great job of making me feel comfortable. I felt really honored to be in the same room as him, let alone get to, get to know him a little bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel honored talking to you about talking to him. I mean, it's just he's he's like a legend over here and in baseball time. And I mean, you're a young kid, but I mean, you carry yourself really well. So I'm sure he really loved that because he's all about lo the locker room and kind of having that, you know, extra piece to not only your playing ability, but your personality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was awesome. Uh, how different was rookie ball from high school ball? I know you haven't played a lot of rookie ball to this point, but was it significantly different? Was it only a little bit? It was it was a big difference because you can't talk to all your teammates because not everybody speaks English. <laughs> <laughs> We've heard that before. <laughs> but it was just the, the level of play steps up a lot from high school to rookie ball. You're not you're not facing guys who don't have stuff. Everybody has stuff, so you can't take anything for, for granted. For granted. And I don't know. It was just it was just crazy to be playing high school a month earlier and then jumping right into professional baseball. It was being able to put on a Cubs jersey because the ABL we wear Cubs jerseys still. We're not a a crazy a crazy name team yet. <laughs> yeah, not, nothing nothing like the jumbo shrimp yet. <laughs> yeah, nothing nothing like that yet. It had to be pretty nice the the fact that. Their facility is in Mesa, though. I mean, it's not that far from home. Oh, yeah. I still live at home. Able to see my mom. I haven't really had that leave-home experience yet, but it's nice to be able to go back to the comfort of your home after a long day of, at the field. Oh, nothing better than mom cooking dinner, that's for sure. All right, so... That is 100% for sure. We got to talk about Henry and Polo. I know you get asked a lot about it, so I figured I'd make the question fun. Ruggie Odor, the second baseman for the Texas Rangers, got his, got his extension and also got two horses. 
Will you demand animals when you finish arbitration in a few years? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know if I'll demand animals. I might use the arbitration money to buy animals. Well, maybe you get a little bit of both, right? Yeah, a little bit of both. Just so yeah. so people have a little bit of context, you have Henry the Billy Goat, right? And then yeah. then Polo the Llama. <laughs> what an absurd combination of friends. That's great. So, you know, thanks for coming out. Obviously, this has been great. We got one last question for you. And so you're only 18, but one of the biggest things when you're in middle school and high school, and I still remember this, I remember going to gym class and, you know, trying to be, you know, a superstar. I remember watching games and playing with my friends and trying to be, you know, the guy that makes a sliding catch or hits the home run. What's the best advice you can give to kids that were in your shoes just a few years ago? If you have a buddy, a freshman year of high school right now, you know, that wants to play at the major league level in any sport, what do you, what would you give about just, you know, some type of advice for them right now? Yeah, so I would, I would tell kids that there's so many different paths in baseball and just to never get, get discouraged. It took me three, three and a half years to get a, a college offer for baseball. And you just can't let that get to you. You just got to keep playing your game. You got to control the things that you can control, hustling on and off the field, not just when you're playing, but it's the little things that teach discipline and can really promote the kind of player you want to be because you never know who's watching. That was always my biggest thing. You got to play hard all the time because you never know who's watching. And going through the draft process, it was just eye-opening to see the the scouts that would come up to me after game. They just look like dads. They dress like dads. They don't have any tail signs. You never know who's at your games. 